trusting that you're in Matthew chapter 16. I'll be reading, despite what your bulletin says, from verse 13 through verse 23. One of the most astounding and profound and monumental passages in all of the Gospels is found here in Matthew 16. And we read, Having come into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus questioned his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, John the Baptist. Though others say Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should say to no one that he is Jesus the Christ. From then on, Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary for him to go away to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. So Peter took to him and said, God forbid, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not thinking as God thinks, but as men think. Let's breathe a quick word of prayer together. Almighty God, You alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant Your people grace to love what You command and desire what You promise. That among the swift and very changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I hope the sermon title this morning is a bit abrupt for you. I hope it is as abrupt as it must have been 
for Peter when Jesus turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Jesus has a way of putting things. He has a way of putting things. We think of him as meek and mild. Sweet little baby Jesus. Jesus has a way of putting things that can be awfully abrupt and that can be sometimes offensive. That sometimes can't be found in the same sentence with meek or mild. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Just mere breaths after saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Man didn't reveal this to you. The world didn't show you this. Flesh and blood has not made this known to you. My Father in heaven has revealed this. And you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Moments later, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're not thinking like God thinks. You are thinking like the world thinks. There's a problem in the church. There are a multitude of problems, let's be honest. But there's one major problem, one big problem, a problem that perhaps Jesus would call satanic Christianity. It is found in Christians who think and have the mind of Satan, who think like the world and think that the world's thoughts are God's thoughts, that the world's way of doing things is God's way of doing things, who equate this life with the life of God, who equate their own priorities with His, who see their own dreams as being His, who impose their fears and their reluctance upon Him. Getting to the root of the problem, Jesus tells Peter, you're not thinking like God thinks. You're not mindful like God is mindful. There's something fundamentally and elementary wrong with the way you see things, the way you see the world. And it's in that breath that he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your way of thinking is an offense to me. There's a problem with how we think. Matthew tells us that this conversation took place in the areas of Caesarea Philippi. Now think about that. Caesarea Philippi. You probably can't 
recall where it is on the map, but it is outside of the Holy Land. He has taken his disciples outside of the Holy Land. He's taken them to this place, Caesarea Philippi, which gets its name from Caesar, Lord of the world in the Roman world, and Philip, Herod Philip, one of the Herods, one of those terrible kings. So he takes them outside the Holy Land. He takes them to this place established in honor of Caesar and Herod Philip. This place that used to be called Benias, the city of Pan. If you remember much about your Greek theology, remember that Pan was one of the gods. If memory serves me well, he was symbolized in a goat, I think. So he takes these disciples, leads them to this pagan city. This city filled with idolatry. Monuments all around. In every nook and cranny of the city, statues representing all the gods, Apollos, Aphrodite, Zeus, Pan. In Caesarea Philippi, right where Jesus and his disciples were, there was a grotto called the Grotto of Pan. And a stream came from out of that grotto. And it was believed that that stream led to the river Styx, the river of the dead. where the dead would be taken to Hades. Littered throughout the background of this story are these vulgar images of pagan deity. And Jesus says, Whom do men say that I am? Oh, Lord, some of them perhaps think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Maybe you're one of the prophets. They, they mention Elijah, Jeremiah. And Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter with regard to his disciples. Whom do you say that I am? Now, picture this. Jesus, with all of these statues of false gods surrounding him. Who do you say that I am? Peter chimes in. Very customary for Peter. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. We've got it. Again, picture that grotto of Pan with that stream running through it. The stream that goes down to the dead. And Jesus, as he applauds Peter for his profound theological intellect, says, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus is 
beating into his disciples this image that he is not some mere Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior and Redeemer of the world. And even the Greek conception of hell will not stand against his church. He is more than just our personal Savior. He is Redeemer of mankind. He has come to save all. In fact, his desire is that none would be lost, as Peter said. So here's this abrupt, perhaps offensive image in this city called Caesarea Philippi, and it's there. Not in Jerusalem, but on the way to Jerusalem. Not in the Holy Land, but outside the Holy Land. Not in some nice Jewish synagogue, but in the midst of Greek and Roman paganism. That he asked that question. Who am I? In your mind. What have you come to know of me? Am I just your tribal redeemer? Am I just your good luck charm? Am I just the one who fixes your problems? Who rescues you from oppression? Or am I firmly fixed in your mind as the redeemer of the world? The Christ, the Son of the living God. There's something wrong fundamentally with the way we think. There's something wrong with the way we think as a church. I'm not talking just about our congregation here. I'm talking about the church with a capital C. We have convinced ourselves that we have been established so that we might be protected. So that we might here find safety. So that we can be safe from the world that's around us. So that we can be protected from all the dangers that lurk about. Notice though what Jesus says about the relationship of the church to the very gates of Hades. Those gates shall not prevail against my church. Now, I've never served in the military. I've never lived in a castle. I have driven past a castle in Raymond, Mississippi that was highly, highly decorated for Christmas. 
and it had a little moat around it with a little bridge, a little drawbridge actually. And Santa Claus would stand in the uh, one of the towers, and it was a legitimate old world castle that had been built in Raymond, Mississippi by someone with way too much money apparently. <laughs> he didn't know what to do with it, so he built himself an old castle. But his gates were fixed. Those gates weren't moving except for to swing open to let the cars paying their money get through to see the tour. Gates don't go to battle, folks. A church goes to battle. The image that Jesus is implanting into His disciples' minds here is that there are gates of hell that stand firm but cannot prevail against His church. The implication of that is that it is His church that is, anticipate, is expected and anticipated to be storming those gates. And instead... We sit and hope and pray for security and safety. And we keep away from the world because the world's bad and we're good. The world is lost and we're found. And we forget all the while all of those parables and all of those teaching opportunities that Jesus used with His disciples and the multitudes to drive into their minds the fact that He cares about the world. He has not written it off. He has not said, that's them and this is us and we won't go there. He says the gates of hell itself will never prevail against the church militant. When the church storms those gates, they are storming the gates to offer life to those who are dead. To offer hope to those without it. To offer promise to those who are in despair. The problem with this big C church and it's thinking lies in the problem that you and I have. We don't believe that enough. If we believed that enough, we would be able to adequately answer the question, this week, how have I stormed the gates of hell? Whose life that's lived in despair and hurt and pain and hopelessness, whose life have I rushed to? To offer hope, compassion, the life of Jesus. We don't care enough about our neighbors. Some of you might. And that's commendable. We don't care enough about our enemies. Few of you might. And again, that's commendable. 
How have you, how have I, in very recent memory, stormed the gates of hell to offer life to those who live in death? I think if we can't offer a solid enough answer to that question, it's because we do not think like God thinks. We do not think like Paul said we were enabled to think in Christ when he wrote to the Philippians, let the very mind of Jesus be implanted into your thinking. See the world, see others the way He sees them. He left the splendors of heaven. He emptied Himself. Charles Wesley said He emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. He left it all, became a man, a servant, and died a rejected and despised criminal's death. He died a death that wasn't good enough for a Roman citizen. He died the death of an outsider. A scoundrel. Peter has just said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, God's very anointed, the Son of the living God. Peter's got pretty solid theology. He's thinking rightly at that point. And Jesus says, fellows, we're headed to Jerusalem. And when we get there, Bad things are going to happen to me, and you're not going to like them. I will be betrayed. I will be given over. I will be mocked and ridiculed. I will be tortured. And eventually, I will be nailed to a cross, and I will die. Notice Jesus then ends with, And yet on the third day, I will rise. Peter says, God forbid it. In fact, looking at the uh, the original text, it's it's amazing. Peter uses a really weird Greek idiom that that, uh, doesn't have an English equivalent really. He basically says, favorability. (laughs) What does that mean, Peter? He's saying, God is going to smile upon you. That'll never happen to you. Those who suffer, God's forgotten about them. Those who hurt, clearly God's hand is not upon them. The prophet Isaiah said, we looked at this man of sorrows and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Rejected. 
God doesn't have anything to do with that. He's a criminal. Clearly he got himself into some major trouble. He should have kept his mouth shut. He should have played by the rules a little bit more. He got himself into this and God has left him. We see suffering and we see dying and we recoil from it. We don't like to suffer. In fact, we don't like it so much that in America we've built whole theologies around how God doesn't ever allow anybody to suffer. And all He offers is blessing and bliss and happiness and finely trimmed yards and nicely polished cars and freedom from all disease and illness. Things haven't changed much in a few thousand years. There's something fundamentally wrong with how we think. Because the scriptures would lead us to believe that it is only in one thinking more of another, so much so than himself, that he's willing to suffer, willing to die, willing to give his life, that it is only in that type of self-giving, self-pouring out, self-abandoned love that a world can be redeemed. It is only in seeing that type of love in you that your friends ever have hope to know Jesus. Because if not you, then who else? We could easily chalk it up and say, well, God can do anything. He can use somebody else. Well, yeah, but what if that somebody else has that very same attitude? We don't think like God thinks. And Jesus doesn't say simply, well, you just see things differently. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Calculating Measuring. Scheming. Retreating. Hiding. Excuse offering. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christian faith. The faith upon which Christ has built His church. The bedrock of our faith is a faith that looks to Christ 
as the world's redeemer and leaves all self abandoned and storms the gates of hell itself to suffer, to hurt, to be filled with pain so that others might know Jesus who did that for us. And that's the only faith to which we're called. That's the only hope that the world has. And at the end of time, it seems reasonable to conclude that that will be the issue when we stand before Jesus and answer his questions. I think it's appropriate that we evaluate ourselves in light of this sobering reality. And we respond appropriately. Whether it be to kneel before him at a makeshift altar whether it be to mark the back of a communication card in a bulletin, or whether it be simply to cry out, Lord, change the way I think. God has put somebody in your life in need of rescuing. Not so that you can develop some weird Messiah complex, but so that you can learn the joys of pouring out yourself for others. Because God always has a way of taking those type of gifts and doing them miraculous. Let's pray. Father, as we bow ourselves before you, We pray that you would search us. We pray that you would break our hard wills. We pray that you would tear down our defenses. We pray that you would open our lives to others. Father, we need to get beyond ourselves. Frankly, we need to forget about ourselves. So Lord, we come and we ask that you would help us.
We ask that you would help us to think like you think. We ask that you would help us to have the mind of your son Jesus. And we ask you to help us to share the love and light and hope and peace of the good news. Christ has come. And He offers His life to us and to a world that is riddled with death. Lord, help us to respond to You as You see fit. In the name of Jesus, we pray.